This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no, I'm not going to get into who is a real Native American and who is not. This is The Terra Papers. Okay, so, way back in the day, not sure which day, not the exact day, because I didn't live in an area that got Art Bell, but sometime afterwards, on one of those days, I heard a coast-to-coast AM interview on the Hale-Bopp Comet. This was from 1996, I believe, when it was still on the way and getting hyped up beyond belief. So I heard this interview with this really engaging guest, and it was um, he connected Hale-Bopp to some Native American lore and and content aside. I mean, even you know beyond the engaging content, it was a classic Art Bell interview. Now, this person was Robert Morningsky, and he had written a book slash booklet slash tract slash manifesto slash whatever called The Terra Papers. And we're going to talk about that today and some of his other ideas. So let's talk about it. So Robert Morningsky uh, claimed to have been born into uh, the Hopi and Apache tribes, and there's um you go online, there's a lot of dispute about that, and I am not going to get into the question of of that at all. I think it's um, a bit, since, since I have no inside knowledge whatsoever and no direct evidence of one thing or another other than what people said, I, I don't think is a great idea for a white guy to start, you know, claiming that somebody isn't the ethnicity they, they say they are. So I'm not going to, not going to go into that. And he's gone into some stuff, um, far beyond and after his Terra papers and and sort of space-oriented thing. I'm not going to get into that either because it's not really flying saucery. Uh, Although, uh, for something more recent, stay tuned all the way to the end for an interesting twist. So, biographically, this is from uh, part of the introduction to the Terra papers, and it fits in with, with how Morning Sky represented his past and his experience on various radio programs. I am called Morning Sky, Robert Morning Sky. My grandfather was one of the six young Indian rescuers. When I was young, my grandfather told me the story about his star visitor. He and his friends called him Star Elder, a name given out of respect. But as time passed, his name was revealed to the youths. He was called Bekti. This is his story, and mine. In the late 60s, I was enrolled at a university in a religious studies program. Toward the end of my studies, I submitted a paper that briefly summarized the history of man and Earth as told by Bekti. I titled the paper, Terra, A Hidden History of the Planet Earth. I was sure I had presented a well-researched and well-documented work. It was immediately labeled a work of outrageous, if not blasphemous, distortion of historical records and not of the caliber of a serious student of religion. The Terra papers, the story of Bekti, nearly got me thrown out of school. So that's the crux of the story, or at least this part of the story. Uh, alien crashes in the desert, or what we would have thought of as an alien, and the young men who later would become elders, uh, including Morning Sky's grandfather, talked to them. This was supposedly 
1947 in 1947 in the American Southwest. Morning Sky grew up with these stories and just accepted them as fact. And after his sort of, you know, shunning by the academic community of this story, this narrative with which he'd grown up, he turned to the UFO field for answers, which is something I think we can all agree you should never, ever, ever do. In frustration, I approached a UFO organization and some UFO researchers reasonably confident that they would be most interested in my story. To my surprise, I was rejected offhand. I was advised by one researcher that UFOs were quite clearly a phenomenon of a technology and not the works of the mythical beings of primitive peoples. Curiously, he is now a well-respected UFO author and has recently released a book on the E.T. Native American connection. Now, if you're wondering who this might be, in an interview with um, Jeff Rents on the... I'm trying to think of what it was called at the time. I think it was still called The End of the Line, uh, back when it was more of a UFO, paranormal-oriented show than um, what it's become now. Anyway, on that appearance on End of the Line with Jeff Rents, Morning Sky strongly suggests through the use of initials that the author he's talking about is Brad Steiger. So academia doesn't want him, the UFO crowd doesn't want him, although he will get back into the UFO crowd later. In the 1990s, at the height of the popularity of the Terra Papers, there is this description of his then-current activities that featured on a website. Robert Morningsky travels almost constantly, mesmerizing audiences, large and small, around the world. He demonstrates traditional Native American dances, then tells his story in living rooms, theaters, in school auditoriums, on radio and TV shows, and in personal interviews, anywhere people will listen to him. He has quickly become a favorite speaker at expos and UFO conventions. His words resonate with truth. People receive answers to far more questions than they could ever think to ask, and they come back to hear him again and again. Morning Sky has been subjected to several burglaries at his office with confidential files and computer equipment stolen. His travel trailer was vandalized. His life has been threatened. He has suffered great losses, but he made a promise to his grandfather, and that promise will not be broken, no matter the cost. So he promised his grandfather that he would take a year of his life and tell the story that the alien creature told to his grandfather and the other young men who were no longer young men, but were old men, but they were young men when they were told the story. So to return to the Terra Papers, the book itself, he closes out the foreword with this troubling prediction. Man will soon be surrounded with images of asteroids and falling fiery comets. Black pigs will be seen everywhere, as will angel figures. Dinosaurs will become children's heroes and violence will be the foundation of their play. New airborne diseases immune to existing treatments will surface. NASA will be rendered weak and impotent if not terminated. A galactic war of conquest rages over our heads. Earth and man is the prize. I want to know more about these black pigs that are going to be roaming the earth. Seriously, though, this sounds very science fiction-y. You know, there's a, there's a war in heaven that's going to be affecting all of the earth. Now, the book proper, which came out in, I think, 95, I should have mentioned that, uh, it opens with a sort of prelude thing, a sort of frontispiece. I'm not sure what to call it. Epigraph, epigraph. It's an epigraph, I think. I don't know. We are not alone. The astronomers are wrong. The scientists are wrong. 
They are here, but we cannot see them because they hide. They hide in plain sight. We are their servants. We are their slaves. We are their property. We are theirs. We are their property. This is very, very, very Charles Fort-like, isn't it? The property line is, uh, is sort of attributed to Charles Fort from his writings. I think John Keel sort of amplified that idea. Now, Morning Sky's um, sort of use of this, I don't think it's, it's probably an intentional ripoff or homage, uh, depending on how you want to say it. So the basic story is that in 1947, a group of Native American boys in the Southwest met a being called Bekti, who told them a story. In time, the star being would come to trust the six. By using a small crystal to create images, the visitor began to communicate with the young men. Calling him the Star Elder, the youths sat at the knee of their friend, examining all of the crystalline images with great care, piecing together the incredible history of our solar system and mankind itself. Star Elder's message was simple. Star beings have been here since Earth was a barren rock. They were here when man was created, and have been here throughout his evolution. In some cases, their involvement was benevolent. In some cases, it was not. Man has been guided, and he has been misled. The star beings have been our gods, and our devils. They have always been here, and they are still here now. When pressed to explain his presence on Earth, the star elders stunned the six. There was a war in the skies above. His ship had been downed by enemy forces. Again, this sounds very sci-fi. It's almost space opera-like. Right? His spaceship had been shot down by enemy forces. He's crashes. He he's crashes. He crashes. And the actual story that Bechti tells them is very tinged with uh, the sci-fi elements and, and phrasing as well that sort of makes it sound like a cross between a bad uh, science fiction novel and something pretending to be an ancient sort of mythological work, which makes a lot of sense with what we're going to be seeing down the road. The explosion rocked the nothingness of the void. Primordial essence was thrown violently outward, like a primeval ocean, wave after wave crashed out into the black pit of the void. Nothingness beheld chaos. Chaos poured out into nothingness. As the primeval waters streamed outwards, rivers of dark essence swirled together, forming huge whirlpools. As the whirlpools spun inward, the essence condensed into clouds of gas. Superheated from the compression forces in the core of the swirl, sparks ignited the volatile clouds. Explosion after explosion formed enormous balls of fire, supernovas of brilliant red and dwarf stars of blazing blue. Like islands in the waters of essence, the stars formed from the swirls in the spinning galaxies. Time after time, the process was repeated in the void. Time after time, a galaxy was born. In time, one of these galaxies would come to be known as Eridanus. This is a history of one small part of Eridanus, and a tiny world known to us as Earth. So, Eridanus is our galaxy. Over time, life develops in Eridanus, including a form of life called Eridanus Man. As primordial Eridanus Man developed, his caves gave way to huts, Gatherings of huts became settlements. Settlements became cities. The trapping and hunting of animals gave way to fur trading. 
Fur trading gave way to markets, gathering birth to gardening, gardening yielded to farming. The needs of Eridanus man became desires, desires became greed. Compassionate men became leaders, leaders became conquerors, and a primitive world became civilized. Differences of opinion became arguments, arguments became wars. Curiosity and necessity gave birth to technology. Early Eridanus man had conquered his world. And then Eridanus man looked up, up into the skies, and he saw his moon. He created ships to carry him skyward, and his conquest of the moon began. As he stood upon the moon, as he surveyed the lunar cities, he looked up and saw the stars above him. Seeking more, he moved skyward again. This time, neighboring worlds were discovered. Eridanus man conquered the environment of the new world, and the cycle began again. Eridanus man doing all right for himself. Now, there's no sense of timeline here, so we can't tell how long this whole process took. But over time, Eridanus man, having gone to the moon and built moon cities, met some other people. And so it was that Eridanus man met his relatives in the galaxy. Eridanus Birdman met Eridanus Mammal Man. Eridanus Reptile Man met Eridanus Insect Man, and an Eridanus Reptile Man greeted them all. The many evolved beings of the worlds of Eridanus gathered and talked. They traded, they danced, they shared, and they joined together. In time, they learned from each other, and they lived together. And they went to war. So, that's a bummer. Wars consumed Eridanus, and none of the empires survived, except for one. The Empire. Yes. Empire. This was called this because, quote, so-called, because of the hissing sound they made as they spoke. They were the supreme masters of war, we are told, and were led by queens called the or T. Actually, T is probably better. Why were they called that? I have no idea. Why is this music playing in the background? Wait for it. It's because of Eridanus. As soon as I saw Eridanus Birdman, I knew that the classic Birdman cartoon would have to make an appearance. So we've got the Empire, led by the faction who are the the queens it gets more confusing than that but before we get into that confusion let's take a break next time um it's been a while since a read these books installment so we're going to be doing that featuring some uh, really recent stuff that i'm a huge fan of and some older stuff as well you can check out past episodes read some reviews of saucer related stuff and support the show at saucerlife.com or through the link in the show notes thanks so much to those who've donated in the past we really appreciate it as always we are on twitter and instagram at saucer life and you can email us at the saucer life at gmail.com you can also contact us by post at chizo media p.o box 68 grand blank michigan 48480 the saucer life is available as you all know by now anywhere you can find podcasts so go ahead and smash that subscribe button man no don't neither will i ask you to to give us a five-star review because no 
no, don't, don't do that. Don't play into the game of, of feeding the machine's algorithms, man. Anyway, back to the show. Okay, so we've got the s and the s t, and then there's another group um, that is going to to come into this, but it's also confusing. Here's a little bit more from Morning Sky that hopefully will clear things up. In a galaxy of chaos and war, the s beings had no peer or competition. Ruthless in command and efficient in their cruelty, the ST queens were brilliant politicians and war strategists, using events to advantage and manipulating wars to their advantage and gain. Providing the royals with the power to conquer and reign over their foes was a powerful military force, unmatched and unequaled by any other. Comprised of tall, imposing figures, the ST warriors were blood-soaked warriors with frightening dragon-like faces. Though evolution had long since removed their scale-like skins, the plates on their body armor gave an impression of fierce dinosaur beings. Only a long ridge of bone rising from the forehead and trailing back and over the head remained to hint at their reptilian ancestry. Known as the MK or MG, the appearance of the warriors alone was enough to strike fear into an opponent's heart. Countless wars over billions of years had taught the s queens a vital lesson. An enemy or rebellious subject serves no purpose if executed, but if the brain was reprogrammed, resistance was eliminated, and an able body was added to the labor force. Mind control was the s-t science of choice. Now, there's also another group called the Ariane which would become known as the word or place Orion. Ariane, Orion, Ariane, Orion, get it? You get it. But though it had become the epitome of power and might, a symbol of brutal rulership and unrelenting aggression, the fates would play a curious trick on Ariane. In their quest for galactic power, the S-T- warriors had looted the palace treasuries of their victimized worlds. The cultural riches of conquered worlds were placed on display in the museums of Ariane, making the empire the center of ninth sector culture and wisdom. Ariane became the showcase world for poetry and music, art and dance. It was a step, however unknowing, for the evolution of temperance in the S-T psyche. If this seems confusing, don't worry. You are not alone. Now, at the same time, you know, you've got the the S and the T and the Ariane slash Orions. There's also um, some pages where, where Morning Sky goes into the, the origins of Earth terms that are connected back to this MK and MG groups that he mentioned a little bit ago. So I'm not going to go through all of uh, all of these but um he says the following words are ver- the, oh, he says the following are various words of mk mg origin um magister which is master or chief in latin magus magus magician in latin um the following are english words of mk mg origin make to force amok chaos turmoil major huge 
or greater. Mega, huge or enormous. The word majesty comes from these alien letters. Also, MJ-12 or Majestic-12, the UFO operations group that is reprogramming the brain. And the terms Ariane and S or triple S, Ariane is the origin of the term Aryan, which he defines as the super race of Adolf Hitler. S or the SSS group, that's where we get the SS, the elite military of Adolf Hitler. Really? Really? Seriously? I, this, is, this is taking the, I'm taking these two words that have nothing to do with each other, but kind of sound vaguely similar, and I'm going to point out some sort of conspiracy based on that to a whole new level. So we've got the Ariane, we've got the, there's also the Ur Empire or RRR or the Asa Ur Empire. It gets confusing again, and I will let Robert explain. Though the reign of the S-T queens on the ninth sector was seldom challenged, of great concern to the Ariane queens were the movements and expansions of yet another race called Ur. Evolved from vicious mammalian predators, the Ur were still in the early stages of development. Their thirst for expansionism unburdened by the softening that continual wars and time brought on. For the Ur race, war was the entirety of existence. All else was meaningless. Life itself meant obedience and total commitment to the Ur kings. Anything else meant death. So quickly did they create their empire, so ruthless were their techniques, that the Ur would become known as Asa, or overlords. In the ninth sector, the worlds of the Ur would be known as Asa Ur. Led by the fearsome Iku warriors, our barbaric army with a fleet of deadly starships of overwhelming firepower, the kings of Asa Ur wreaked havoc on the worlds surrounding the ninth passageway. The elite Iku forces descended on their unsuspecting targets with unmerciful and unrelenting attack, clearing the skyways of any potential resistance and totally decimating land-based strongholds. Within moments, warrior ground forces, the Be, moved in to annihilate any and all remaining military forces. Renowned for their practice of devouring the flesh of their enemies, the Iku and Be became known as the DK or TK, the teeth of the Ur. I have absolutely no evidence of this, but I am strongly, strongly in favor of the notion that this started out as a treatment for a screenplay that went absolutely nowhere. Um, so there's continued fighting between these factions until there's an attempt at peace, but the Ariane are getting ready to betray everybody and it just goes on and on and there's rebels and new empires and rulers showing up, all with confusing names. The upshot is that eventually one of these groups is known as the Anunnaki, which is a term that we've all heard before, not all, but a lot of us have heard before. The Anunnaki would arrive in our solar system and eventually arrive on Earth and this would be the root of all world mythologies as these groups sort of pose as, or not pose as, they are, you know, incredibly, you know, powerful otherworldly beings and the beings on earth, you know, worship them as gods and are enslaved by them. 
So yeah, this is Zechariah Sitchin stuff. And there and, and it just I'm really shortening it because oh um it, it it just goes on. So like I said, if you're familiar with Zechariah Sitchin stuff, um with the Anunnaki and, and humanity is created as a slave race to mine gold, I think was the story. If you're aware of that, you're pretty much clued in. And there's some bad guys um, who would cause problems as well. They're called the Shet-I, S-H-E-T hyphen I. So where does this leave us in the present day? Morning Sky eventually finishes up his, his you know, Zechariah Sitchin fan fiction and clues us in. For the last 4,000 years, man has been deceived. The Shet'ai are still here. Native Americans who know of them call them Chet'u, lizard men. Hidden in the darkness, they emerge from their lairs to torment and use humans for their own purposes. The Shet'ai are known today as the Greys, created from the genetic materials of the beings and the Asa-Ur beings themselves, the Shet'ai are hybrid lizards who retain many of the characteristics of their progenitors. So, what are, uh, what are these guys up to? I mean, I think we know, but we should probably check it out. For thousands of years, the Greys have been the primary, though not the only, agents behind the phenomenon known to us as abductions. Utilizing the mind-altering techniques of their S-T-A ancestors, the Greys continue to erase memories and alter minds as a mask for hiding the experience from victims. Abductees virtually always report memory losses, an altered state of mind generally unchanged unless an external memory jog or hypnosis retrieval occurs. Yeah, that's what I thought. Is there any good news? Numerous psychologists report implanted memories, apparently intended to screen the actual event buried within the psyche of the abduction victim. Often the memories change a fear of large-eyed greys into fear of large-eyed owls, deer, and other animals. Though alteration of the minds of abduction victims can, and sometimes does, enhance mental abilities, i.e. psychic, clairvoyance, clairaudience, etc., The purpose of the abduction is not benevolent, but rather to erase inappropriate memories or to prepare the subjects for other purposes. The universal reports of mind manipulation, complete and unstoppable body shutdown, memory implantation, and memory erasures confirm that the ancient methods of the S-A-T-A have not been mythical, but in fact are techniques used by greys today. Likewise, the Shet'ai lizards are not mythical beings born of the imagination of a civilization thousands of years ago. They are real, and they reside alongside us, watching over us, performing abductions, and erasing our memories like a videotape blank, as it serves their purpose. We are theirs. For now. Okay, so that's what um, I expected. No real good news. So the aliens have infiltrated, or we've been theirs all along, or or something. It gets confusing. At least it gets confusing to me. I mean, there there are people who can take these these sort of big cosmic, you know, all-encompassing history of everything conspiracies and sort of make sense of it and have fun with it, but it's just too big for my brain. 
Now, there's also a Terra Papers 2, which recounted um, the basic space war Earth seeding story. But also, uh, about half of it is made up of a, a sort of fun timeline of how the bad guys have manipulated the Earth throughout history and includes nods to a huge number of conspiracy theories in almost every category you can think of. Notably, uh, the Freemasons are pretty much the bad guys. Here is a sample of that. 1600 AD. The Bank of Amsterdam is formed. It is the first bank that institutes the science of money, issuing notes against assets held, oftentimes more notes than asset value. The glorious revolution puts William III of Orange, of the German House of Orange-Nassau, on the throne of England. William III is a Freemason. The German House manufactures a war against England, then rents hired soldiers to England to fight in them. This is repeated several times. The English treasury is looted. The Bank of England is formed under a plan created by a Scotsman, William Peterson, a Mason. The Bank of France is formed under the plan created by another Scotsman, John Law. He, too, is a Mason. The lizards intend to solidify their hold on the wealth of the planet. Syrian and Orion crews that sneak in cannot be allowed to possibly undermine their power base. Banking must be centralized. Okay, so that might be the most entertaining take on the central banking conspiracy theory, uh, that the the reptile men need them to do it. And also there, I should point out that the Syrians he mentions are Syrians from planets orbiting the star Sirius, not, you know, people from Syria here on our own planet. The names that Morning Sky uses are, you know, sort of homophones, so I... After I listened back to that, I realized I should probably point out that he's not saying it's a, a conspiracy between the the Ur, Isa Ur people and, you know, the Syrians um, in the Middle East. So other things that come out of this timeline, oh, Hitler. Hitler was chosen for his role by the Orion Psych Warriors. And uh, that didn't go well because uh, Hitler ended up being too unstable for their plans and everything sort of went wrong. Morning Sky also brings in the supposed treaty between Eisenhower and the aliens from 1954. He brings in some John Lear-flavored stuff with black ops and CIA drug running being used to fund a war against the aliens. I think this is really all over the place. It, it reads like somebody jotting down narratives based on half-remembered bits of things they read off the internet. So when the Terra Papers came out and when Morning Sky was doing his, his sort of year of telling the story as, you know, to fulfill his promise to his grandfather in 95 and 96, you have appearances on uh, Dreamland, on Coast to Coast AM, on The End of the Line with Jeff Rents. But after a bit, uh, he starts to expand what he talks about. And in 1996 and 1997, begins linking the, the Hale-Bopp comet and its companion to his what he claims is Hopi prophecy. So just as a refresher, 1990, uh, 1995, 96, we have this Hellbop comet headed towards Earth. It's going to be a spectacular display. And in late 96, there are people who say there is uh, there's one amateur astronomer who says there is a another object trailing Hale-Bopp. And that ends up being 
a complete scam and a sham and a a huge thing. And we're, we're you know, I've resisted doing a Heaven's Gate episode because there's so much good Heaven's Gate stuff out there. But I think a more general Hail Bop episode would be uh, would be a lot of fun. So here we have a little bit of Morning Sky discussing the Hail Bop companion with Art Bell. Now I should say um, I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm excerpting these things in the interests of fair use for purpose of critique and review. Um, I don't know if anybody would buy that, but if I, I will say this, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to uh, fight the power over things that aren't strictly important. So if whichever corporate behemoth, you know, controls coast to coast AM, uh, sends me a cease and desist letter, I will, um, I will gladly edit these things out or maybe just send the whole episode down the memory hole with no explanation to really confuse people. Uh, a while back I had on your program predicted that after the appearance of Hale Bop that we should see a companion. We should see uh, yet another body, uh, according to Hopi Prophecy, that would be appearing sometime after this uh, long tail comet. And uh, lo and behold, in the last uh, couple of weeks or so, uh, you have this phenomena of the companion. So um, there are numerous Hopi prophecies and uh, prophecies from other Native American tribes as well. But the Hopi prophecies, which uh, can be very specific, seem to be uh, fulfilling themselves uh, because of this uh, comet hale bop and now because of its companion. So the accuracy of the comet excuse me, of the prophecies, um, I would say they're remarkably high. Okay, so it's a harbinger of sorts. Um, what's it harbinging? Or that's <laughs> a verbified harbinger. Um, what is it a harbinger of? Um, basically, the star being ancestors are coming back. The question that has to come to mind, if that's true, if we have been visited, as I am suggesting, as Mr. Bramley, Hancock, Sitchin are suggesting, then where are they now? If, as I am suggesting and others are, that the face on Mars is a creation not of an earthly civilization that went to Mars, but one who was on its way back, where are these beings now? And I am suggesting that in their timeline, in their frame, their perspective of time, they are making a relatively immediate return. The old biblical, in a day shall be as a thousand years, or or 10,000 years, I'm sorry. I think that's exactly what's happening. We will, I believe, in seven years, meet and greet the beings who are part of my book, of Mr. Sitchin's books. We're going to see our star being ancestors. So that would be seven years after 1996, which would be, I don't know, I can't even do that kind of math, but I'm pretty sure that was a while ago, and I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. So they're coming back, but why? Why are they coming here? Are we just going to have this meet and greet, like he says, or is it something more significant? I'm going to suggest that humankind is part of a grand experiment not to create a hybrid race in the stars, not to do some of these uh, outrageous stories that I hear, but 
in in looking at books like the Bible, in looking like uh, in books like the Quran and so many of these ancient texts, and if you look at some of the old uh, Hopi teachings or the Aborigine teachings, we humankind is an experiment, a grand experiment, and I believe. We have been given the tools, we have been given the wisdom, we have been given the opportunity, in essence, to prove ourselves. Now, whether one looks at it in terms of the biblical God who is saying, okay, here is a chance you are being tested as to whether or not you're going to be in heaven, right. or you're going to go to the other place, right. um, we have had an opportunity. And I'm suggesting that in seven years, they're going to come back and they're going to check on what we have done with what we have been given. Yeah. I kept that little Art Bell sort of verbal ejaculation in there, you know, just for fun. So this isn't sounding good. Um, as a uh, member of the human race and as a member of the human race who was around when this was uh, this was happening, I wouldn't have wanted any supreme being uh, to come back and see what I was doing in 1996. Okay, I was sitting around in my dorm watching bad movies. But that, I mean, still, nothing nothing to be proud of, right? Okay, so this isn't sounding good. What's going to happen? Well, um, now I'm going to ask you to put yourself in a position that you cannot do, uh, but try for the sake of our conversation. If you were the purifier, which would come and pause and take a look down at what's going on here, uh, how would you, presently viewing society, what, what would your judgment uh, be? Okay. Let me... <laughs> I'm glad you don't want to put me on the spot. <laughs> let, me, let me answer that in what I'm, I, I am sure the, the prophecies would suggest the purifier would do. If I were the purifier abiding by the prophecies, then what is suggested is going to happen. Yeah. Um... The qualifying factor in who is going to be uh, uh, oven cleaned or removed or, or who remain, <laughs> yes. uh, oven off, um, the, the key is whether or not this individual, one at a time, one human being at a time, has lived up to the promise made thousands and thousands of years ago. Now, in researching the world's oldest religion, I have come up with a scenario that not only matches Hale-Bopp and the crop circles, but it suggests what this path is. Given what I see in general across the globe, I would say that if I were the purifier, um, <laughs> there wouldn't be a lot of people left on the planet. Now, that is not my choice. That's not my decision. If I personally had a, a say in it, uh, I wouldn't do that. But based upon the rules, at least that which is established for the purifier, mm -hmm. we have not lived up to the old ways. And perhaps in your next segment we can talk about what the old ways are. But we are not living up to the old ways. We have given up our humanity. Uh, we no longer have common sense. Uh, our world is no longer concerned. We no longer are taught to uh, make sense. We're taught to make dollars, and that is, I think, our downfall. This sort of judgment would take the uh, the, the appearance of, of eliminating everybody who wasn't uh, pure of heart, uh, which would be 
I think everybody, but uh, it was sort of, you know, metaphorified as being a cleaning out of the Petri dish uh, after a failed experiment. And for his part and, and to his credit, Art sort of, you know, makes the point that he has a real problem with sort of, you know, broadly speaking, new age types talking very blithely about earth changes and, and cleansing of humanity uh, as though it wouldn't involve a massive amount of suffering and hardship for the people on the bottom rung of the ladder socioeconomically, materially, who are just trying to survive and, and might not have had the opportunity to go out and do the work necessary to rise up to a higher spiritual level. Anyway, when Hale-Bopp turns out to, you know, sort of fly by the earth with no companion and no real issue, um, at least as far as the actual physical effects of the comet are concerned, Morning Sky turned to other topics, uh, conspiratorial topics that were briefly discussed in the Terra Papers, too. It was a dangerous business. Something has happened to you now. I know you don't want to discuss it a lot, but I've got to ask some questions. Uh, you were involved in a hit-and-run accident. Um, as, tell me about the accident uh, itself, rather than right now discussing uh, the intent or motivation or whatever it was. W tell me about the accident itself. Well, um, I was uh, in early June. I was preparing for the uh, gathering of elders at the uh, Star, uh, Star Knowledge Conference in uh, South Dakota. And... Uh, I reside out in the hot Arizona desert, and uh, I normally go running quite late in the evening because it's cooler. And I actually seldom exceed uh, two blocks from uh, where I actually reside. And uh, I was out running in the evening, and I've, I've done this several times, so and I've always been careful. And this one time, I just... Uh, uh, he came out of nowhere, and um, we argued, and he won. <laughs> so, I um, were you running when you were hit? Yes, I was. He came up from behind me. Did he have his lights on? No. No lights. No. Um, obviously, had he struck you head on? Okay, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask, but I would assume that had he struck you head on and actually run over you in the classic way we imagine it. You wouldn't be here talking with me at all. So was it a glancing blow, or how were you hit? Well, I, I was running actually on the side of the road, and um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I am a dancer, and I, I have performed in many powwows. And, and I'm very much my, aware of that, yes. My presentation, so I like to think that I'm healthy and stay in shape. And actually what happened was when I heard, uh, perhaps even felt the car behind me, um, and, and I don't know. I don't know why I didn't hear it. Uh, I, I don't think I was caught up in, in any thoughts, but I turned enough to see it coming, and I literally just leaped as, as hard as I could to the side of the road, and uh, I was very fortunate in that, that uh, I, I can't say that I actually recall uh, the, the, the collision, but... Uh, I actually, when I hit a grass, I was kind of near a ditch, and I rolled down into the ditch, and I stayed there for just a few moments just to see if I could hear or see anything. Um, I didn't, and uh, as I said, I was only uh, just a couple of blocks from home, and uh, I managed to make my way back home. So I take it this car didn't slow, didn't stop. Oh, no. Didn't no. say... No, no, 
No. There was it no just... horn. There was no. Uh, there were no lights. There was uh, uh, again. I don't know how it got behind me. Um, it it just was there, and the next thing you know, I was uh, was a combination of my uh, just. I guess out of sheer panic or reaction, I jumped to the side. And, yeah, sure. Uh, what time of night was this? Um, would have been about uh, somewhere between 11 and 11.30 in the evening. So somebody tried to murder you. <laughs> I mean, at 11.30 at night, uh, Robert, uh, dead, uh, uh, dead dark, um, no headlights, not stopping after the accident. Somebody tried to murder you. I don't see how else anybody could add that one up. Well, I can add it up this way. The man was jogging in the middle of the night and probably got clipped by a drunk driver who forgot to turn his lights on because drunk drivers generally do dumb things like not turn their lights on and hit people who are out jogging in the middle of the night. So what was the stuff that Morning Sky was into that was so dangerous that somebody was going to run him over and leave him for dead. Well, he had uncovered information from sources and had revealed this information to, I think, um, some organization in Europe. He, he wasn't clear about it because it's very dangerous that the Holy Grail perhaps is not a physical cup used by Christ at the Last Supper, but instead the Holy Grail is the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. That's right. Robert Morningsky apparently had picked up a copy of Holy Blood, Holy Grail at Goodwill or something, which you can always find a copy of Holy Blood, Holy Grail at Goodwill. It, it's just there. Or failing that, the Da Vinci Code. He connects this to uh, the Knights Templar. He connects this to the, um, it, you know, sort of, official Christianity's sort of diminution um, and denigration of the notion of a, a, a sacred feminine. He's, he's treading a lot of ground that has been tread a lot by people who haven't been, you know, run off the road while jogging to cover this up. It's, it's, kind, of, uh, it's kind of pitiful, and I think that was his last appearance on Coast to Coast AM. So, to sort of summarize Robert Morningsky, he was um, one of these people, and he's still active. Uh, he's still sort of really focused on the sacred feminine idea. It's outside the scope of our flying saucer stuff here on uh, here on the show. But if you go to, I think it's robertmorningsky.com, you can see what he's been up to. But it's it's very much an attempt to to work Native American traditions and mythology into the wider. Uh, the wider world of um, UFO and extraterrestrial visitation narratives, but doing so in a way that was very much uh, akin to what Zechariah Sitchin was doing for Mesopotamian myths and, and had been doing for a while. We should probably do a Sitchin episode at some point, uh, but he brings in you know people from Sirius. Um, we should talk about the whole Sirius thing the book, The Serious Mystery, and so forth. And speaking of serious, uh, the writer Robert Anton Wilson uh, talked a lot about the serious conspiracy and, and, and you know that whole story. You might be familiar with it. If not, we'll be doing an episode in um, probably this year about that. But at one point, uh, Robert Anton Wilson had, had spoken fairly highly 
of Robert Morning Sky's work, which some people had thought was was fairly interesting. So um, there's that as well. Oh, oh, there's one last thing from Robert Morning Sky's current website. He says this. More than 30 years ago, I presented a paper in which I suggested our world was visited by beings from the stars. My Terra papers were based on a thesis I wrote many years earlier. My thesis was based on the data and records available at that time. Now, so many years later, with far more information in scientific and historical fields available, I can say my original thesis premise was relatively accurate, but my inclusion of star beings visiting in spacecraft was wrong. It was the accepted premise at the time this would be the only explanation for ancient stories of sky beings descending to Earth. I had missed a key point. In my History of Mankind section, I offer and agree with the findings of NASA. No trace of extraterrestrial life in our universe has ever been found. And, contrary to popular opinion, there is no conspiracy to hide any such evidence. I also examine alien artifacts offered as concrete evidence of alien visitations. The evidence will speak for itself. So basically, yeah, never mind. Uh, Instead, why not read this new stuff I'm writing and and talking about? So kind of an anticlimax, but what's interesting is uh, even until relatively recently, you can find, you know, through Google posts where people are, are talking about the Terra Papers as though it's something he just wrote last week and you know he's still completely on board with everything he wrote in there not realizing that you know he sort of had you know walked that back a little bit um as we all do sometimes thanks for listening there's a link to the Terra papers, uh, both one and two, uh, in the show notes, but no link to the Art Bell material used. If you like old Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM's paid membership has a wealth of old material, and it's a highly recommended service. Music and special sounds uh, today were by the Chizo Media Radiophonic Workshop under the direction of Freddie Von Ronke. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.